This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. We've been writing a book for the last 12 months and uh, as a sneak peek, one of the things we've got in there is we created our own value of learning formula. So the formula goes that the value of learning equals the quality of the content divided by the time you invest in it to the power of selection, so what you select to learn. With uh, something like Blinkist, the quality of the content is obviously there because you're getting the best of the best stuff. The time invested is phenomenally low because in 15 minutes or less, you can get the best bits from the best books. And if you take that to the exponent of the power of selection, then Blinkist is also a winner as well. You can sample a whole bunch of different books in 15 minutes or less. You pick the best ones and you're selecting for the best possible things that you can learn. Yes, it's quite geeky of us, but we'll take it, mate. Because uh, really, Blinkist is for anyone who cares about learning. who doesn't have a lot of time. Blinkist takes the key ideas and insights for over 4,000 nonfiction bestsellers right now and counting over 27 different categories and puts them together in 15-minute text and audio explainers that help you understand more about the core ideas. So it's something we both really enjoy and highly recommend. Some of their winners, are some of their most popular books that they've got in Blinks, uh, episodes we've done like everything is effed uh, is that what we say everything is effed we'll it's all that. fucked by, by Mark Manson things like Sapiens uh, and also some books that we haven't done yet but are probably coming just around the corner Why We Sleep The Courage to Be Disliked Becoming by Michelle Obama these are all things that you can check out on Blinkist so right now Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience go to Blinkist.com forward slash what you will learn to start your free 7 day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist Premium Membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com forward slash what you will learn to get 25% off and it's free seven-day trial. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Humankind by Rutger Bregman, A Hopeful History. The uh, books we've been doing in the past might have given you a bit of a dim view of human nature, things like The Prince, things like Collapse, things like uh, The Selfish Gene, even Sapiens was a little bit dark. Ordinary Man was obviously very, very dark. This book gives us a bit of a different approach. Hopefully, it gives you a bit of hope about humankind. We've uh, done a lot of dark books this season. A lot of them draw on studies from the Stanford Prison Experiment by Philip Zimbardo, the Shock Experiment, Stanley Milgram, the Kitty Genovese murder, and the meta principle in all of these that humankind, deep down, were very dark, dark species. And at a drop of a hat, we might be able to switch to that darkness and commit the same atrocities that we've seen through history. Yeah, so if you've been... uh bit put off, a bit upset by the rest of humankind and uh, have a bit of a dim view of human nature after listening to some of those apps. Hopefully, this will give you a bit of a bit of the opposite view that shows that we're not all bad and uh, we actually are pretty, pretty damn good deep down. So, this is an alternative view of history that we can take in. And Rutger here, he starts with a story from the middle of the Second World War when London was in serious danger. So Winston Churchill, he said London was the greatest target in the world, a kind of tremendous fat cow, a valuable fat cow tied up to attract the beasts of prey. And the beasts of prey, of course, is Big Adolf, a uh, bit of an asshole, as we all know, and his rolling war machine looking to come down on London. <laughs> yeah, maybe an understatement even, but uh, yeah, he wasn't the best of blokes. Uh, but the, the fear was that 
if terror broke out within the British population, the city would go to ruin. So it's sort of like the, I guess the whole idea of terrorism is that you just have to do a few small acts and then the chaos that ensues within the population will take care of itself. So the fear was that the whole city would just go to ruin. Traffic would stop. The homeless would be just uh, shrieking in the streets. They wouldn't have any idea what was going on. The city would be pandemonium. There was a prediction that three to four Londoners would flee the city. And they even considered this last-ditch attempt of just building an, a series of underground bunkers and tunnels and stuff just to hide out for a bit. But the fear was that, uh, actually, we better not do this because maybe no one will ever come out again. So they thought, no, we'll scrap that um, and we've we got to go to plan B. But it wasn't just the bombs that was the biggest risk. I think once the bombs start dropping, it'll strike such terror in all the people that they're going to destroy themselves and everything around them. Everyone will become somewhat nihilistic. What's the point of... Are following all the rules when we're going to die anyway soon. So, more than 80,000 bombs were dropped on London over nine months. 40,000 people lost their lives. And what happened? How did the British react? Did they panic? Did they get hysterical or did they become into brutes? So, this is the, uh, the time known as the Blitz. And obviously, that's, that's horrendous. 80,000 bombs in nine months, 40,000 deaths. But eyewitness accounts from that time actually said that things pretty much continued as normal. Small children were still playing in the streets. Shoppers were still haggling in the markets. Police were still directing traffic. No one even looked up to the sky. And when one journalist asked the bloke, hey, weren't, weren't you guys afraid? He said, no, what's the point of that? They just went, went about their normal everyday business. Yeah, it's a bit of the old British character, the stiff upper lip. Shopkeepers even had signs out the front saying, more open than usual. And things like, our windows are gone, but our spirits are excellent. Come on in and try them. That's not pretty bad. good. I'll jump yeah, in for that. That's good, yeah, good marketing. And in fact, in some ways, mental health improved during this time of wild chaos. Alcoholism tailed off. There were fewer suicides than there were during peacetime. And after the war ended, people referred back to the Blitz, remembering how everyone helped each other out and looked out for each other. And there was this real period of solidarity. So when the prediction was that you know a few bombs would just lead to absolute utter chaos, it actually strengthened the entire uh, British community. So... Big old Gustave Le Bonton, who had this theory that uh, that said that people would descend a few rungs of civilization, was actually completely way off the mark. And people didn't go to their worst. It actually brought out the best in people. So the bombs strengthened London when they landed in many ways. But Winston Churchill, he thought, nah, Germany's different. They're a bunch, they're, they're very weak compared to us. Once we start dropping bombs on them, this thin veneer of humanity is going to come out. They're going to panic. They're going to surrender and give up. And they've got this lack of moral fiber that when shit goes down there, everything's going to blow up. Yeah. So, the theory was initially that, hey, if you drop a few bombs, the chaos will ensue and everything will take care of itself. But then the theory shifted a little and said, well, it didn't work on British because, you know, they're a different, they're a special type of people, but it'll probably still work on the Germans. So, they thought, okay, well, let's, let's unleash chaos on the Germans and see what happens. Uh, and of course, they uh, they thought, you know, the Germans, they wouldn't even be able to put up with a quarter of what we went through. If we just hit them even harder than they hit us, things would just break down. But of course, they, they, they unleashed chaos. And of course, the Germans actually got stronger. It didn't have anywhere near that kind of uh, devastating impact that they thought. Yeah, there's no sign of this mass hysteria. And again, they solidified as a culture and united and were stronger in, in their ties of community. So, they actually dropped 10 times more bombs on Germany than Germans had dropped during the Blitz. Uh, but they found that all of, this, uh, all of these bombs actually prolonged the war by strengthening the German economy. Tank production went up nine times. Jets went up 14 times during the bombings. And they found that 
uh, in cities that had been bombed, they were actually more productive than cities that hadn't yet been bombed. Um, and one grocer put up a sign saying, disaster butter sold here, which is a, you know, not bad. Probably not as good as the other gags that the British were whipping out, but it's all right. Pretty good, pretty good <laughs> gag, I think. Not bad. And uh, military experts are very slow to learn. Similar thing happened in the Vietnam War when US dropped three times as much firepower uh, as they did in the Second World War. So Vietnam just got bombed, bombed, and bombed. But the evidence, again, it solidified Vietnam. And as a commu- their community ties increased to the point where they were solidified against the US and it was counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah. So the US dropped three times as many, uh, three times as much firepower as during the whole Second World War, and then they lost. So it turns out that strength and resilience, it wasn't a British thing, it wasn't a German thing, but it's actually an entirely human thing. So this book's about a radical idea, and it's an idea that's going to make all the rulers and the top dogs around the world really nervous. And it's an idea denied by religions and ideologies, ignored completely by the news media who are out to sell papers. And it's erased from all of the, the manuals and books of world history. So, that one massive idea, it's quite a simple idea that actually deep down, most people are pretty decent. Yeah. It's a, bit, it's a big idea, but it's an idea that uh, seems to be neglected a lot, especially if you're reading the types of books we've been reading as well. 100%. Let's say you've got two planets. Planet A, uh, everyone's on an airplane, there's an emergency landing, and it's broken into three parts. Cabins are filled with smoke. Everyone's shitting themselves, basically. On planet A, the passengers turn to their neighbors, ask if they're okay. Those needing assistance are helped out on the plane first. People are willing to risk their own lives just to help random strangers. And then you've got planet B. Everyone is left to fend for themselves. There's a mad rush to the exits. You nudge old grandma <laughs> next to you on the ground and stomp on her head on the way out. And just to make yourself get to the exit first. If you did a survey, I think, and read a lot of the books we mentioned at the start, most of the people in the world, 97% would say we're in plan B when there's mass panic, there's going to be hysteria most likely and selfishness. But what he's found in almost every case, we're much more likely to be living on planet A. We're very kind to help each other out wherever we can. Yeah, that's it. If you if you watch Seinfeld, uh, George Costanza, when there's a small fire, he's run, He's literally pushing over grannies, <laughs> literally running o- over kids. He gets out, uh, and uh, but that's not what most people are like. In fact, most people are actually actually quite willing to help each other. So if you watch the movie Titanic, it looks like chaos. But if you ask people who were actually on the Titanic, they said the evacuation was actually pretty orderly. Mm. And even if you think of September 11, as the Twin Towers were burning, thousands of people actually calmly descended the emergency stairs. They even stopped, moved aside, let people um, who were in need, you know, ambulance or fire, they let them go past. If people were coming from a different floor, they stopped and said, no, no, you go first, you go first, you Mm. go in front. So even though it was absolute chaos around them, people didn't descend to just you know, trying to just bolt and try to push people over. They actually were quite calm and quite nice to each other. Absolutely. And if you look at, say, coronavirus in Melbourne, as soon as it broke, there was a lot of headlines around Australia and I think it even made world news of people in the local shopping market fighting over toilet paper, Mm. uh, panics, panic buying everywhere (laughs) and everyone is out to buy their own stuff. Yes, that kind of stuff got on the news but and that will probably make the history books, those moments. But in reality, if you think about it, uh, a lot of people, they started wearing masks, they started doing social distancing, they started complying and really doing all these actions necessary to help and reduce community transmission. And they did that rather than just go out and just hang out with their mates and buddies and live like normal. So they sacrificed a lot out of human decency out rather than selfishness. Is I think the headline and 97% of people live like mm. that rather than the 3% of people uh, pushing over grown masks <laughs> to get the toilet paper. 
Yeah, that's it. That's the type of stuff that makes the news is the bloke who walks past a granny and rips her cans of dog food out of her hand or whatever she's <laughs> eating. But uh, that's just what the news is showing. But really, I've, you know, for three months when we were locked down, everyone was wearing masks, everyone was doing the right thing. So that obviously didn't make the news quite so much because it's probably not so interesting. It's easy to show how dark people are, but it's, it's, uh, it's actually more realistic to show how kind people are. So this is a big myth that humans are selfish, aggressive, and just quick to panic. And it comes from this Dutch biologist, Franz de Waal, and he called it veneer theory. And the idea is a civilization where nothing but this thin veneer that we could crack under the slightest bit of pressure and we're just going to chaos. But in actual fact, in times of crisis, when all the bombs are being dropped or a pandemic hits or floodwaters rising or anything like that, humans, we actually become our best selves. So we humans, we were the first species to go to the moon, uh, but why was it us and why was it not a, a banana or a cow or a chimpanzee? They sound like pretty stupid questions, but if you look at a banana, we're actually 60% the same genetically. If you look at a cow, we're actually 80% similar to a cow and we're actually 99% the same as a chimpanzee. So how does this 1% difference uh, mean that chimpanzees are hanging out in the jungle and we're going to the moon? So we consider us humans as unique, which we are in a few ways, but really we're just the products like your banana and your cow and your chimpanzee, uh, the products of a blind process called evolution. So Charles Darwin, he learned that a few important ingredients were really important for the evolution of life. Really lots of suffering, lots of struggle and lots of time. So the process of evolution is actually quite straightforward so animals have more offspring than they could possibly feed so it's only the ones that are slightly better adapted to the environment that have a slightly higher chance of surviving and that means they're the ones that procreate so it's these minuscule differences uh these tiny tiny variations they actually end up branching out uh into this vast and varied tree of life so it could be thicker fur better camouflage a pointier beak a longer neck any of these tiny tiny differences get compounded over time and today, us humans, we're really dominating the planet, whereas 99.9% .9 of other species, if you look over all of history, they're gone and we're just sitting here kicking ass. So, what's the difference between us and all the other species that have, that have been around on the planet? Well, you might think, well, we're just stronger, but that's not true at all. A chimpanzee could clobber us over the head without breaking a sweat. A bull could charge at us and just pierce our, our vulnerable skin with its horn. Babies are completely useless for years. You know, I think some some type of uh, you know antelopes they might pop out of the womb and they're running straight away. Whereas humans, they're like for years they're completely useless and reliant on others. So we're definitely not the strongest species around. So we can rule that one out. You might think we're more clever than other species. Uh, we are smart, obviously, but I think the, the way we need to test it is you pop a toddler out and test their operating system versus someone or a species like a chimpanzee. And if you do this test, chimpanzees are actually faster at processing information and working memory and they wipe the floor with us. You might think then that we're more cunning and that's what the big Niccolo Machiavelli in The Prince, that's what he says, that he says you've got to weave, weave this web of lies and deception in order to gain power and then to stay in power. And for, you know, that's been the, for the last couple of centuries, that's been the idea that to get to the top, you need to be cunning, you need to be deceptive. But researchers did a test on chimps in this game that involved lying and conning your opponent. And it turns out that humans... Uh, we're actually really shit at this in that we're, humans are real suckers. They trusted the other person, whereas chimps were actually way better at lying and tricking their opponent. So that's us against all other species like bananas and apes. 
and things like that. But what about the other species of humans? There's this uncomfortable fact, if you think about it, about 50,000 years ago, there were five other species of humans that were standing near us, things like the Homo neanderthalensis, the most popular one, the big brute force, and all of these other species of humans, they look quite similar to us. Yeah, you got your Homo erectus, your Homo flor... This is normally the ones I leave to you, these pronunciation ones. Homo florensiensis, Homo neanderthalensis. So, basically, like there's all these different types of humans. And if you think about it, the differences between them is kind of like the differences between the, a goldfinch, a housefinch, a bullfinch. They're all different types of finches. But if, if we look at it, it just it looks like a bird. So, what he's saying is that there's, there's these five different types of humans. They're all different, but really, they all look pretty pretty similar. So, how the hell did we... Uh, beat all these other five and we're the only ones who are still left. So, were they weaker than us? Not likely. If you've got Homo neanderthalus, the average, I hate pronouncing these, neanderthalus, <laughs> was basically your typical Arnie Schwarzenegger hanging out on Venice Beach doing bicep curls, absolutely huge compared to us. So, we were very, we were weaklings compared to them. They even found that uh, from studies of their skeletons and stuff, the types of breaks and fractures that they had are actually found in rodeo cowboys today. So, basically, what the, the conclusion is that this, these pussy humans are out there picking up berries off the ground compared to the Neanderthals who are out there taking down big bison and, and massive uh, walruses and stuff like that, whereas we're just you know, picking, picking off the trees. So, they were much tougher than us. Okay, but surely they were dumber than us. Look at us, we're so smart, us humans. But in fact, the brains of the other humans were 15% bigger than ours. So, we're hanging out with the MacBook Air 2013 version. They're hanging out with the MacBook Pro $3,500 Apple sucks version. <laughs> so, they had a much better ability to process information again than we did. Yeah, it's, they're actually um, Neanderthals. We think that they were these big, dumb... Um, big dumb jocks basically but they're actually supremely intelligent they built fires they cooked food they made clothes they made musical instruments they made jewelry they had cave paintings we actually stole a whole bunch of ideas from them as well like stone tools they came up with us first and then we ripped it off so you can't say that they were um, weaker and you definitely can't say that they were dumber now this is where most historians like your richard dawkins he'd say that the things that humans had over them is we were more selfish yuval noir harari he said in sapiens uh, when sapiens encountered Neanderthals, the results were the first and most significant ethnic cleansing campaign in history. So, that's not a good bloat no, on us. And the Pulitzer winning prize geographer, Jared Diamond, my man, author of Guns, Germs and Seal, he said, murderers have been convicted on weaker circumstantial evidence. So, all of the history books say, we, we just basically wiped them out because we're assholes like your Hitlers, like your Stalins or even worse than that. Yeah, that's it. The only thing left is because we were weak, we were weaker and dumber. So the only thing we must have had was our mean streak. But okay, so that's that's the setup. Let's fast forward to another wild Russian dude. His name's Dmitry Belyaev. Uh, again, I should. I don't know how I'm mistiming these ones, but we'll call him Dmitry. He uh, he wanted to do this wild, wild experiment. This is back like in the 50s and 60s. He travelled to Siberia, just on the border of Kazakhstan and Mongolia. And his experiment, he wanted to get Siberian foxes and turn them into dogs. So he thought, well, if if you can take the fe- one of the fiercest predators um, on the planet, something that has never ever been tamed or domesticated, and turn them into cute little fluffy puppy dogs, then that'll really tell you something. So Charles Darwin he noted that there's a lot of d- animals that have been domesticated. So Dimitri here, he wanted to actually just do it in a very quick fashion. So other animals like pigs, rabbits, sheep, and so on. 
and they all underwent pretty similar changes. As they went through the domestication process, they got smaller brains and teeth, floppier ears, curlier tails, and lighter coloured fur, and they keep a lot of their juvenile traits for their entire lives. So, Dimitri had this one theory, uh, he thought, and his one theory, the, this one crucial piece of the puzzle was he thought it was friendliness, so that's what he wanted to test out. He went out there, uh, picked up a bunch of silver foxes to become his subject. They were so vicious, so aggressive that they had to wear these like elbow length, two inch thick gloves, uh, rubber gloves as protection. Basically, as soon as you went anywhere near them, they just snapped straight onto your arm. So, he had these hopes that over uh, years or decades or he might never get there, but he thought, I'm going to dedicate my life to this. So, the first batch uh, that he caught, if a fox attacked straight away, they were too aggressive, so he'd let them go. If there was even like half a second of hesitation, he took that as a positive sign, so he kept those ones for breeding. So, for each generation, he picked the ones that had the best of the lot in terms of friendly attributes, trying to mimic this natural selection, fast-tracking centuries of this evolution of domestication, and the friendliest foxes they were kept for breeding. And by the fourth generation, some really interesting things started to happen. Uh, the first fox had actually started wagging its tail. And when the researchers tried to maintain their distance a bit, as they need to do on their breaks, some of the fox cubs were actually begging for attention and affection, so they were pretty needy here. So, in the wild, these fox cubs, they get super aggressive at just eight weeks old and for the rest of their life, um, they would basically attack a human. But these uh, ones, these fourth generation puppies, they actually remain juvenile their whole life. They didn't want to hunt, they didn't want to attack, all they wanted to do was just play all day with the researchers. And at this stage, they also noticed physical changes. Their ears dropped, their tails curled, light spots appeared on their coats, their snouts got shorter, their bones thinner, the males started looking a lot more like females. And before long, these foxes started responding when the researchers called their names. And that's crazy because <laughs> it's a trait that's never seen in foxes before. And all of a sudden, all these new byproducts started emerging out of selecting for the criteria of friendliness. They even did blood tests and they found that these uh, domesticated foxes compared to the wild ones actually had more serotonin, so more of this happiness hormone. They had more oxytocin, more of the love hormone than their wild cousins. And so, it's, it's quite wild that the only thing that they did was they picked the friendliest one and then all of these happened within a couple of generations. All those physical changes, all those changes in their temperament, all just came along for the ride as well. So, applying this theory to humans, uh, Big Bad Dimitri, the crazy Russian, he hypothesized that humans were really just domesticated apes. So, for tens of thousands of years, the nicest and the friendliest um, apes, they were the ones that had more kids. And so, the nicest and friendliest humans, they were the ones that had more kids. So, it was really just survival of the friendliest. So, this is a pretty crazy theory when you think about it. But the changes that actually happened to the Neanderthals, if you popped out a skeleton and looked at their scales and everything like that, compared to Homo sapiens, the comparisons and changes are very similar to the differences between foxes and domesticated dogs. So, Neanderthals, they had this big chin, this huge thick skull, and this really masculine kind of features, just like the original foxes did. But as the Homo sapien evolved, similar thing happened to it as it did to dogs. We've got smaller heads, more delicate features than Neanderthals. And compared to Neanderthals, Homo sapiens were much smaller and much cuter. I'd rather 
yeah, go on a date with a homo sapien, I reckon, <laughs> than a big Neanderthal female. Yeah, I think so for sure. I think uh, just as like the dogs, when the dogs matured, they started looking more like the wolf puppies. And so just as humans matured, they started looking more like baby monkeys. So he's saying that we're basically just like the, the puppy version. He calls us the homo puppies. We're the smaller, we're the weaker version, but somehow we were able to conquer the planet and that's because we we're the friendliest. So it probably sounds by now like... Uh, it's a very weak case that we actually conquered the planet because obviously we're not cunning, we're not clever, we're not strong. We just become friendly and naive just roaming the planet and surely we'd get our ass kicked by the, all the other species. So when we, we talked back at the start of this section about the intelligence test um, and saying that the, the chimpanzees and the orangutans are actually smarter than us and that was on all the things like uh, spatial awareness, working memory, all those things. There was one test though that the humans did way better uh, and it's called the object choice test. So what they do is they put this little treat inside of an object on a table and a researcher gives some uh, visual clues as to which of the two objects has got the treat in it. So he is like literally looking at it, pointing at it and saying, here, basically pick this one. So the chimps, they got this 51% of the time. So it's almost... Uh, a random guess, effectively. So the chimps, they just they don't trust the researcher at all. They couldn't even find the banana more than half the time. But toddlers, they actually, once they trusted the professor, they were getting it right 99% of the time. Because all you do, if you trust the other human and that you think that they're telling you the right thing, then you're going to pick whichever one they say. So basically, these chimps, they didn't trust each other. Um, they didn't trust us. They weren't able to work together. So they're just fighting for themselves. Whereas the humans, the friendly humans that trust each other, they're able to work together and cooperate. So, compared to all the other species, we're actually able to, as toddlers, trust all other humans and in trusting, it means we're much more capable of learning and passing down different things that were important to the next generation. Whereas all the other authors, including Yuval Noah Harari, said over 100,000 years, it was our cunningness and our ruthlessness that we worked together in getting rid of all the other species. But if you look a little bit closer... What happened was there was this huge ice age about 115,000 years ago to about 15,000 years ago and us homo sapiens, we developed the ability to work together to trust each other as depicted on this object choice test, whereas all the other species of humans, they hadn't developed this and they were out on their own uh, and had to suffer the cold and couldn't work together and trust each other in this way. So we might need a bit of a revision of the history books where biology students are learning that it's all about selfishness. But in reality, it's all about cooperation is the most crucial aspect. Okay, so if we're saying that it's survival of the friendliness, that deep down all humans are kind-hearted and friendly by nature, well, there's a few historical events that need a bit of explaining then. How do you explain Auschwitz? What about Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot? They definitely don't fit with this friendly side of nature. Not at all. And we did a book, Ordinary Men, by Christopher Browning, which I think is what a lot of social psychologists might uh, turn to and basically says we've got such dark aspects of our human nature that under certain circumstances we're just going to fall into these appalling acts and just with a few tweaks in our environment, um, Joe the butcher, Susie the school teacher, anybody, they can just turn into people as brutal as Nazis. But all of these theories of the social psychologists really underpinned by just a couple of studies and Probably the most famous one is the Stanford University experiment by Philip Zimbardo. So the story goes that at about 10 a.m. in the morning, police cars roll up and pull nine young blokes out of their bed. Uh, three of them 
were booked with theft, four booked with armed robbery. All these neighbours were caught in surprise. They didn't realise what the hell was going on. They thought they were nice, innocent young kids. But these criminals, it turns out, they were actually college students who had signed up to be part of an experiment, an experiment that would go down as, as one of the most notorious ever conducted. Uh, it's, it was on the front page of the newspaper. It filled the college textbooks. And for decades still, we're, we're going to be talking about it. So these criminals, they were handcuffed and marched down the stairs to the basement of the Stanford University Psychology Department. And at the bottom, there were nine more students, but they were dressed in guard uniforms, wearing dark mirrored sunglasses to mask their eyes. So both groups of kids are there to make a bit of coin. They're getting a bit of coin for this experiment to either play the role of prisoner or guard. So the prisoners, they were stripped naked. They had chains clasped around their ankles. They had caps pulled down over their head. Each was assigned by a number. And from that point on, they would only be referred to by number, never by their name. They were given this smock to wear and they were locked up three person per cell, which was just, you know, a classroom downstairs. Uh, And what happened next, as you've probably heard, this experiment quickly spiraled out of control and it was thought to reveal some of the grim truths about human nature. Yeah, the story goes, left to their own devices, these healthy young men, several of them previously called them pacifists, they just turned into complete different versions of themselves. In just a few days, the guards did all sorts of wild shit to the subordinates in order to try and break them. So they made them actually shit in the corner of their (laughs) cells, like giving them no toilets. And they put the prisoners one by one through sleep deprivation in all kinds of perverse ways. And the guards, they were just reveling in this newfound power that they had and they could put onto the other humans. Yeah, one of the inmates actually went ballistic and this is like the the footage uh, that's been bandied around for the last uh, 50 years or so that he was kicking the cell door. He was screaming, I'm burning up inside. Sweet Jesus Christ, let me out. This is all fucked up inside. I can't take it. Let me out. And that's uh, that's one of those <laughs> things that everybody everybody remembers and that's uh, almost like the, the signifier of the Stanford Prison Experiment was how, how wild it got within just a couple of short days. Jeez, I'm sold on it. <laughs> yeah. well, that's quite believable. But Philip Zimbardo, he, he was hanging out here just watching the kids left their own devices. He got swept up in the drama too, though, <laughs> and he was playing the role of prison warden. And he was really determined to run this experiment out to the very end. But then his girlfriend came in and asked, what, what the hell's going on here, <laughs> Phil? This is a, this a bloke shitting in the corner. And there's these other shooting yelling out, screeching and crying. So that was day six when the girlfriend said, you got to pull the pin here. It was meant to be two weeks, um, but they finally pulled the pin. And I reckon in terms of marketing, it's actually probably good for him to say, oh, it was too wild. I had to pull a pin. Uh, But we'll we'll sort of get into some of those darker sides a bit later. But the big question is, what the hell happened here? We've got nine ordinary, young, passive uh, university students, and they became so ruthless when they were handed the reins of power. So I think any intellectual over a glass of red will pop this story out or a Netflix documentary and the idea that the experiment, which is a natural consequence of the uniformed guard and being put in these societal roles, humans kind of fall into the most heinous acts based on the external circumstances they're put in. So the big conclusion here, Zimbardo says that we are all capable of these most heinous acts if we're put in that environment and uh, if power is thrust upon us. So that's a version of the story that everybody knows. That's the popular version. That's the Netflix doco version. Uh, but there's a few things that we probably haven't heard too much about before. And before reading this book, uh, I wasn't aware of any of these. Uh, but Big Rutger's done a bit of digging and he says, well, there's a there's a few holes in this this whole experiment here. So firstly, it's assumed that the prison guards, they were sadistic of their own accord. 
So they're basically left to their own devices and they came up with all this evil stuff that they did in the experiment. And Zimbardo, he was even testified hundreds of times in interviews and in front of US Congress. He said the same thing. Nah, nah, they all did it on their own accord, maintaining law, order and respect. It was their decision. Yeah, and that's what he maintained for a long time. But then uh, Rutger's done a bit of light reading and he found that on page 55 of Zimbardo's own book called The Lucifer Effect, he mentioned that he had a meeting with the guards a couple of days before the experiment just to brief them on what their role would be. So already that's a bit dodgy. Um, And then he says his instructions were quite clear. He says that we need to create a sense of frustration. We can create fear in them. We're going to take away their individuality in various ways. They're going to be wearing uniforms and at no point will anybody call them by their names. They'll be given numbers and called only by their numbers. In general, what all this should do is create a sense of powerless. So, that's a pretty strong briefing. I don't think yeah. they've been left to their own devices at all. This is a couple of days before. He's already he's already talking like we. He's saying we as in the sense that, you know, we as in I'm the warden and you're the guards and they as in they're the prisoners. So, he's already sort of setting that bit up and he's already given them a few of the clues as to what they should be doing. Yeah, 100%. So, the kids here, they're getting a bit of a few bucks for to spend at the pub on the weekend. They're just going to do what they're told to do to earn <laughs> the money, right? And they didn't come up with these on their own accord. It was all up to Zimbardo, these ideas before the experiment. There's one idea in in scientific research studies like this, in social experiments. The idea is demand characteristics. So, the concept is that if the subject can guess what they think they're supposed to be doing, in, in, in quotes, you know, what, they, what the experimenters are expecting to happen, they actually start doing it. So, if the prison guards realize that hey it's actually expected of us to be prison guards and to brutalize the shit out of these these other blokes they're going to start doing it so if you can work out that the whole point of this experiment is to show how wild the guards are then the guards are going to go a bit wild and that's even what one of the the guards said in an interview later he says that you know i'd set out with this plan of action i wanted something to happen i wanted to force something because he says after all if if the guards if we were just sitting around talking about girls and playing cars and talking about sports, what the hell would be the point of that? I want to give the researchers something to work with. So, while Zimbardo maintained that the guards, they all came up with the rules themselves based on just human nature, the evidence actually shows otherwise. Turns out most of the ideas were from Zimbardo beforehand and then the other ideas, they were from Zimbardo's class brainstorming with psychologists beforehand. So, all the things like ankle chains, being stripped naked, forced to stand naked in the cold for 15 minutes... These were all premeditated ideas that happened beforehand, not during the actual experiment. Yeah, Zimbardo had a few extra sadistic twists as well, like he had roll calls at 2.30 a.m. and sleep and 6 a.m. to break their sleep patterns. He suggested a range of, of punishments like doing shitloads of push-ups or putting thorny prickles inside their blankets. Uh, and that he even invented this uh, fourth cell. So, they had three, three by three, three kids in each of the three rooms. And Zimbardo had added this fourth cell with a sign on it, which was uh, the solitary confinement room. So, again, it was just uh, maybe Zimbardo saying, oh, they came up with it themselves, but the fourth room was already sitting there with a sign on it. So, it was probably pretty easy to guess what was supposed to happen in that room. So, all of the conclusions of this study have all been about the guards but in reality, the original experiment had nothing to do with the guards. It was all about the prisoners. What happens to prisoners when guards do this stuff to them? What happened to them under immense pressure? How much frustration and boredom could they take? How soon can they become afraid? And originally, the guards were research assistants. And then even back to that kid, remember that kid who was screaming out in pain who couldn't take it anymore? 
Well, it actually turns out that was a bit of an act as well. He'd, uh, he's told this many times before. He even told the documentary makers that it was all an act, but they edited that part out of the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that uh, the kid thought it was a bit of fun to pretend to be a prisoner for the first day. He was, you know, screaming and yelling and screaming and crying, and uh, he thought it was a bit of fun because he was getting paid to be this prisoner, so he was acting like a good employee. But it turns out on the second day, uh, Zimbardo said, no, you can't have your textbooks. Before the experiment, Zimbardo said, you can have your textbooks because this kid had an exam in two weeks. Uh, and as soon as Zimbardo said no textbooks, the kid said, well, I've got to get out of here somehow. So he'd already faked a couple of illnesses. He'd faked an injury. And this mental full-blown breakdown <laughs> was like the final straw so he could get out and go and study for his exam. Yeah, so Zimbardo here, which uh, underpins all of those books we spoke about, Mate, he's gone off and he's become a multi-multi-millionaire <laughs> off this. And I think what he's tapping into is his confirmation bias that a lot of us as humans have with this underlying belief that humans were dark and evil. And if you got that belief, you're probably going to find studies like this and mm. not do any digging because no one has done digging until Big Rutger has now. Yeah, there was even a, it was even found that uh, Zimbardo, he started sending video footage and audio footage to TV stations and newspapers before he'd actually reviewed and analyzed the results of the experiment. So again, it was more of a marketing experiment than a scientific experiment. It was more about uh, he wasn't trying to really find out what happens. He just found that he'd cooked up this elaborate scheme. It looked awesome. So he started sending it out to TV stations and he, he just blew up. He became the guy. Yeah. If it was a truth, the results of his study, then it'd be completely be able to be replicated and they've actually tried to replicate it, it says in the book. I think it was BBC documentary, spent all this big money to try and replicate it and it'd be this awesome TV series. If you imagine, mm. I'd be watching and everything like that. But what actually happened was when they did what Zimbardo said happened, which was all BS, it turns out they did just hang out and playing cards and the prisoners <laughs> and, the, and the guards, they were mates by the end of it. They were giving <laughs> each other ciggies. They were cooking food for it. They were just best buddies. Yeah, the BBC thought it was going to be this awesome tension-filled thing, so they made four episodes. Uh, and it turns out after the first half an hour, everyone just switched off. Everyone no one watched episodes boring. two, three, and four. So basically, big bad Rutger Bregman, the author of Humankind, he's just saying, look, this whole thing, he's calling it a hoax. Okay, so the Stanford Prison Experiment's super famous, but there's actually one more that's well-known that says a lot of dark shit about us humans, and that's from Stanley Milgram. Because in 1961, young Stanley here, he put an ad in the newspaper saying, I'm going to pay you four bucks an hour for your time, which is a bit of money back then. The ad agency, they call for 500 ordinary men, your barbers, your bartenders, local butcher, the businessmen and businesswoman to come and take part in a research study to look at human memory. It sounds quite familiar having those ordinary men, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> He's saying that uh, in, in pairs, they'd be drawn, there'd be one teacher and there'd be one learner. So the teacher, they stood in front of this large device, the shock machine. The learner, they were strapped into the chair on the other side of the wall. You couldn't see them uh, and they were asked to take a test. Every time they got the answer wrong, the teacher had to administer the shock. Now, in reality, it was always rigged. So the volunteer was always the teacher and the learner was actually um, an actor. But of course, they didn't know that at the time. They thought it was just two ordinary people. It was just the, the, the luck of the dip. One drew the short straw to get shocked and one drew the, uh, the, the longest straw and became the shocker. So the first shock was about 15 volts, like a little zap. But then they kept cranking it up, 30 to 45 and so on. And each time the voltage increased, 
the learner who was really the actor and got shocked. They let out a little squeal and then obviously it just got louder <laughs> and louder and louder. And by the time we got to 350 volts labeled danger, severe shock. <laughs> How did they yell, Ash? <laughs> <laughs> I've become the voice actor now. you become the voice well, actor. <laughs> Drop on, mate. Well, actually, at this, at this point, they, actually was, they were just pounding the wall and once they'd hit the severe, they actually went silent. So, I'll, I'll get myself out of that one. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, they, they got to the point where it said danger, severe shock. They were screaming in pain, banging on the wall, and then silence. Oh, <laughs> what, acting out, passed yeah. out, death or <laughs> yeah. something? And then they'd shock him again, nothing. And they'd, like, they'd keep cranking up the shock all the way to the max of 450, and nothing was happening. And obviously, it could have thought they were passed out or dead or something. Yeah. So, before the study, fellow psychologists, they predicted, probably like the conclusions of humankind, you know, everyone's pretty decent, 1% or 2% of people the genuine psychopaths of the world, they continue all the way up to 450 volts. Surely the other 98%, mm. they're not that sadistic. <laughs> You'd hope so anyway, but then it actually turns out 65% of people, two-thirds of these ordinary men, these ordinary women, these dads, husbands, friends, wives, sisters, uh, just the you know, Joe the butcher and Johnny the truck driver, uh, 65% of people went to the absolute max. Even past the point where they'd screamed in pain and then gone silent, mm. um, they were still shocking him. So, Milgram at this stage, he became an overnight sensation. He went to the bars with Zimbardo getting top shelf Johnny <laughs> Blue and they were just laughing it up because they were rich from their two experiments and every newspaper, radio show and TV channel covered this experiment. Yeah, the, the big headline, 65% in test blindly obey order to inflict pain. Again, Stanley, he was sending out a few of his uh, bit of footage and a bit of recordings to the TV and, and the newspapers. Maybe potentially a sign of a dodgy experiment. Absolutely. But the experiment, it hinged on this idea of authority, which comes up in Influence by Cialdini. And it says that humans are creatures that follow authority blindly. So grown men, they descend into Labradors, willing to sit and shake at any command. There was the famous Nazi phrase, Bethel, Bethel, <laughs> which is an order is an order. And people just following orders, just do the most heinous stuff because someone's just higher up on the food chain. Yeah, so Milgram, he came to this one conclusion that human nature comes with a fatal flaw in our programming, a defect that just makes us act like obedient puppies and we'll do the most appalling things if some kind of authority figure instructs us to do so. But I think you're going to see what's coming. We're going <laughs> to maybe tear it down a little bit. And let's holes. just look at a few holes here. Firstly, these were the instructions set out in the study uh, by the authority in the lab coat who was the actor. And this is what he said. Please continue first. Shock. Second one, the experiment requires that you continue. Second one, then the third shock. It is absolutely essential that you continue. And then the fourth one was, you have no other choice. You must go on. So, the issue here is that the psychologists have analyzed, you know, these four statements and they're saying that the first three aren't actually orders from an authority figure. You know, please continue. That's, that's, um, that's just like a nice request. The final one that says you have no other choice, you must go on, that's an order. Um, so, they're saying if the whole experiment is based on blind obedience to an authority, he's actually kind of stuffed it up because those first three aren't orders from an authority figure. It isn't until he gets to the fourth command 
that it's a that it's an actual thing. So it's not that we we're blindly following orders. We we're actually just they were just kind of nice requests that people were going along with. And the 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 funny thing that they found was actually by the time that they got to the fourth one, this really aggressive, you have no other choice, you must go on. People actually stopped. They got more disobedient when there was this overbearing man in the lab coat telling them what to do. They actually fought back against that and said, "No, I'm not doing it." Yeah. So as soon as authority came into play, they did the opposite of what the experiment said. One lady, she actually pretty much came into blows with a the bloke there. She's 46 years old, obviously a legend. She thought, nah, I'm not doing this anymore. She walked over and unplugged this shock machine. And uh, turns out this homo puppy here doesn't brainlessly follow orders. And we actually have a downright aversion to this bossy behavior. But that probably didn't make the newspaper yeah, article. Did no, it? Exactly, exactly. So there's the first hole, first of all. Now, the second hole, uh, and a vitally important question about the experiment itself, is that did participants actually believe that they were administering this lethal shock? Um, and so Milgram himself, of course, he says that with a few exceptions, subjects were convinced of the reality. And we've heard, I think it was in uh, Influence, how they said, you know, one bloke checked the newspaper the next week to see if there were any deaths reported um, from, uh, from where they were doing the experiment. But it actually turns out that a whole bunch of people didn't really believe it. So most people, they didn't think that uh, a person in a lab coat would watch on as you killed another human if you they were in this prestigious um, setting they were at Yale and so they wouldn't think how would Yale allow people to kill another person on their premises oh. so there was there was a, a very low level of belief for most pe- for Mate, most people if both of us were called up into Monash University under these settings not for a second <laughs> I think they'd set me up to kill someone yeah there was actually a follow-up uh, survey sent out a week later and the question was how believable did you find it um, and these these uh, answers they were kept a secret for a decade until uh, Stanley wrote a book and probably got a big book deal to do it. And it was tucked away at the back in just one of the appendices. It actually turned out that only 56% of people believed that they were inflicting pain. Um, so there's already half, more than half were wiped out because they didn't actually believe it. And uh, it actually turned out that of these, you know, the idea that, 50, that 65% of ordinary men will blindly follow orders, well, we're already down to 9% the difference between 65 and 56, um, it's still pretty scarily high, but it actually turns out that uh, it was pretty much bullshit. No one really believed it anyway. Yep. And the final admission on that is the ones who actually did believe it was real, they're the only ones who called it quits. So the mm. ones who knew it was BS, they were the ones who shot it right <laughs> up to see how far this actor could could let out little squeals. <laughs> and pretty uh, wild acting when it just turns into death. They must have had a little giggle as well, I think. Yeah, so publicly, Milgram, he describes his discoveries as revealing a profound and disturbing truth of human nature, but privately in his own personal journals that Rutger somehow dug up, um, uh, Milgram actually said to himself, whether all this uh, ballyhoo points to significant science or merely effective theatre is an open question. And I'm inclined to accept the latter interpretation that it's just effective theatre. So, mm. even Milgram wasn't even believing his own study. But there was a very tiny portion, right? 9% who perhaps they actually did what the experts said and maybe that's authority. But really... It's still pretty scary. If one in 10 people walking around the street would give you a shock, yeah? Yeah, one in 10. So, it's still, it's still scarily high. Yeah, it's enough to really cause all sorts of catastrophes. But there's also another interpretation of the data and... The conclusion was authority, but perhaps it's a little bit closer to trust. So, you think about it, you've got doctors and teachers, they're identified as the men and women in the lab coat, and they're doing it in the interests of science. And the participants, they're doing it in the interests of science. Everyone likes science, it gives us cool shit, 
gives us improvements in technology and medicine and everything like that. So a lot of people, aside from the 50 bucks to buy some beers on the weekend, they actually want to do something good in contributing to progress of the human species. Yeah, exactly. There was one man, he had a six-year-old daughter who had been diagnosed with cerebral palsy. So that's a, a shocking condition that has a life expectancy of only about 30 years. This was one of the people that went all the way up to the maximum. Uh, and the reason he did it was that uh, he said, you know, look, I'm willing to do anything that helps out this scientific research. If, if you say that there's medical benefits to this, it's going to help humankind for decades to come, then I'm willing to do it. So that's like one reason. And it's, it's nothing to do with um, blindly obeying authority, is it? No, in, in that brain, it's like the benefits from this experiment obviously outweigh the costs of what is happening to this individual. So it's easy to rationalize this for with good intentions for improving the case of the species. So Rooker says here, it's less about submitting to the authority but actually more about joining them and trusting the authority and going along in that sense. So the final conclusion is that, look, if you push people hard enough, if you poke and prod, bait and manipulate, people can uh, be capable of doing evil things. So 9% of people did go all the way up to the, the maximum past the point of death, basically. Uh, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So they're saying that evil, it's buried deep down within us and it takes some enormous effort to draw it out, but it's not going to be drawn out by bossiness and by authority. It's only going to be drawn out by a view of the greater good and a view that you're actually contributing something greater. So in the book, he delves into some of the, the biggest crimes, which I think is still in the head, which you got to knock out of people who are going to war, shooting other people, everything like that. Think about the SS soldiers, people shooting men, women, and children because obviously that happened in history. But in reality, if you actually delve deep into that person's brain, maybe they've been brainwashed by some kind of ideology that they're also contributing to the greater good of whatever they perceive as the greater good and they're doing things from their interpretation which is benefiting humanity. So it's not coming from an evil heart in that sense. It's coming from being ideologically manipulated to a warped greater good. World War One had started back in July 1914 and had been going for a couple of months. It was sort of nearing the end of the year and almost everybody around the world thought, hey, this has got to be over soon. Uh, people were rejoicing in the streets at the minorest of victories uh, because they thought, hey, it's nearly over. We're nearly done here. But of course, the worst was still yet to even begin. It was Christmas Eve in 1914, and the British and the Germans, they were lined up in trenches outside a small town in France. Both thought it was possible the enemy were planning an attack on Christmas or New Year's Eve when the other side wasn't expecting it, catching him off guard. Um, and then around 7 or 8 in the evening, something strange happened. First, a little light popped up on the other side of the trench. Then a couple more lights, then more and more, there were these lanterns being lit up, and then like this little shrub popped up almost like a little bit of a Christmas tree. And then the, uh, the Englishmen, they heard it. <coughs> they heard, I suppose I'll do this. <coughs> Stihlegnacht, heilige Nacht. That's pretty good. <laughs> the, the, uh, the British soldiers thought, uh, look, I'm never going to forget this. This is, that was actually one of the highlights of his entire life. So once the Germans had finished their silent night, the British, they responded. They all sung the first Noel. The Germans applauded. And then they all sung together, O come all ye faithful in unison from opposing sides of the trenches. It's pretty insane, isn't it? That two warring nations not long ago, they were shooting at each other. They're singing Christmas carols together <laughs> in the middle of the greatest wars in history. <laughs> It's crazy, man. There's another story from uh, from Belgium. It was a, a Scottish uh, 
regiment. They were stationed outside. Uh, they even went a step further. So one of the Scottish blokes called out to the Germans, hey, has, has anyone got a Siggy? And the German bloke said, yeah, come over and get it. So the Scotsman, he jumped out of the trench, walked across no man's <laughs> land in the middle of a war, the very ballsy bloke. Uh, he popped down into the German side. They started chatting and they said, hey, everyone come out. Let's have a chat. And they all just got together and started started chatting, sharing ciggies, um, sharing drinks, um, and uh, they're all just having a good old time. Yeah, I remember being addicted to cigarettes, but I'd never walk past no man's <laughs> land to get a ciggy. But they were playing games of soccer um, where they used their helmets as boundary lines and rifles as goalposts. They were just like uh, just hanging out as buddies. Yeah, it was known as this uh, the, the unofficial Christmas truce. And it, apparently it happened in battles all over Europe. It wasn't just these isolated ones. It happened pretty much everywhere. Gifts were exchanged. You know, the English gave over tea and chocolate and pudding and the Germans sent them some sauerkraut and some schnapps. Uh, and it was just a, a good old time just for a whole day um, from the night before through to the end of Christmas Day. Everything was pretty much put on hold just to celebrate together. So even though the... All the soldiers were propped by the fear-mongering and hate propaganda that was thrown on them. All it took was something like this to realize the enemy, they're just like them, they're just like humans. And they had people who loved them at home and missed them. They were also scared of war and getting shot and their brothers and sisters getting shot in the trenches. They too wanted to just sing out and just hang out and just play soccer the whole time. So the one thing to remember from all this is that everyone is rather similar. You know, don't pay attention to the the angry voter ranting on the TV or someone uh, spurting out refugee statistics or you know the criminal mugshots being plastered across the news. Because in a different life, that person could have quite easily been your neighbour, your friend, your loved one. Uh, the more we dig and the more we dig our own trenches trying to separate us from them, the more we lose sight of reality. So we're lured into this thinking that the small hate-mongering minority reflects all of humankind, like just a handful of anonymous trolls that are responsible for all the hate and venom on Twitter on Facebook, but it's really just this very small minority who are truly evil. But in reality, the vast majority of humans you come across is generally good, and this assumption is something that's a lot more accurate than I think is depicted in a lot of books and a lot of education that we go through in school. Like everything in life, the more you give, the more you get. So that goes for both peace and wartime. It goes for trust, love, friendship, and kindness. Deep down, if we give all of these things, we're going to get a hell of a lot back in return. A few reviews from around the world this week. First, we've got uh, Samwise Ganji from South Africa. Could be a throwback to a review from Gandalf that wasn't so good, but this one is five stars. So good. Absolutely love this podcast. Cheers to Samwise Ganji. Next, uh, we've got from Belgium, Krebsler Toast. Love it. I'm currently renovating. This podcast keeps me going through the tedious, boring chores. I used to dislike those little chores since I'm not very handy, but now I've grown fond of them, the food for thought I need. All the best with those renovations. And uh, T. Hussey from Great Britain, favorite podcast, five stars. Always listen to your podcast on my run. Thanks, lads. Loving the recommendations and have bought a lot of them. Love it. Well, cheers to those three reviews from around the world. Uh, if you had a review, chuck it in your podcast player. Uh, or if your podcast player doesn't have a review section, we'd love to get an email from you. Whatyouwillearn.com is the website. Then up the top, there's a contact us. Thank you so much. <laughs> 